Brothers and sisters, if you would turn in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 30. Today we've lit the candle of joy because John the Baptist has encouraged us to look and find our joy in something that is outside of this life. And he's challenged us, and he's going to challenge us, to live our lives in such a way that point to a joy that is outside of what we currently see in our own circumstances in this life. Specifically in our passage today, John's going to refer to Jesus as the bridegroom, and that he is the friend, or put it another way in our common parlance, that he is the best man at the wedding. And see, John uses this kind of symbolism, which is a biblical portrayal. This is not something new to him, but he's keeping with the scriptural tradition of God's love and God's covenantal relationship with his people. And it's this covenantal relationship as it's expressed in marriage between God and his people. And this is what Paul picks up on in Ephesians 5. He, 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 Paul easily just picks it up. He says, you know, I'm talking about this mystery of Christ's love for his church. And we're going to dig down into that a little bit deeper, that Christ's love for his church is depicted in the marriage between a man and a woman. You see, the best of the best marriages in this life point to a better marriage. A marriage where the husband actually gives his life for his bride. And the worst of the worst marriages also point to a starker reality that we see in the scriptures. That is that God's bride has forsaken him and run after others. And if you're interested in studying this theme a little bit more, I'd recommend there's a book by Ray Ortland called God's Unfaithful Wife. I'd recommend it to you. It's only a couple hundred pages. And it basically traces the storyline of Scripture that from the beginning, how God's people have been tempted to idolatry and adultery in breaking their covenant relationship with God. Breaking the marriage vows. And he writes this in his book. He says, this theme of God's marital love and of his people's presently adulterous but ultimately faithful response is too much neglected by the church. And it is the overlooked themes of Scripture to which any given age of the church must pay special attention. For it is precisely there in those neglected themes, it's precisely there that we most urgently need to hear the Word of God again. And you can read more about this also in Jeremiah chapter 3. I'm giving you these so you can go there in your own time later today. Jeremiah 3. Ezekiel 16 and the entire book of Hosea is a is a is a parable of God's love for his church and how how he's made these overtures of love to his people and they just run away from him. And this is this picture that John's picking up on that that God has been faithful to his promises, but his people have run away from him and have committed adultery by committing idolatry. And running after other gods. So if you would look at your copy of scripture. John chapter 3 verses 22 through 30. After this. Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. Because water was plentiful there. 
And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person can't receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This image of marriage is not particular to John. In fact, this is the same image that Jesus picked up on in his own ministry, right? He said the kingdom of heaven is like a marriage feast. And and all these people are sent out to go beckon people in the highways and byways to come to this marriage feast. Jesus points to his own marriage with his people, right? At the wedding of Canaan that happened just a chapter before this in John chapter 2. And we don't have time for us to... Walk through all of that, but that is a foreshadowing of this marriage supper that is yet to come. And so John is not picking up on some kind of image just to be able to have a nice, pretty parable or metaphor for people to latch on to, but this is the story of Scripture from the very beginning that God would give his life for his people. And you can imagine that the people that were standing around John were utterly shocked that he would refer to himself as the friend of the bridegroom or the best man because he definitely wasn't dressed as a best man, was he? As we heard last week, he was wearing camel's hair and he looked a little disheveled, almost hearkening back to Elijah, the prophet Elijah. Because this unsavory dress that he wore meant to go along with the unsavory message of repentance. With the unsavory message of preparation in our own hearts. And that's what God is calling us as a people this morning to do. Is to prepare Him room in our own hearts. To hear the best man calling us, as it were. To prepare room. To repent. To put our faith yet again this morning in the bridegroom who has come and who will come. And so the main point of our passage today is twofold. The main point of our passage is twofold. First, that the best man serves the groom. That's our first point that we'll look at. And then the second point is the best man prepares the bride. So the best man serves the groom and the best man prepares the bride for the wedding. So we'll look at this first point. The best man serves the groom. See, John's gospel gives more attention to John the Baptist than any of the other gospels. And there's a reason for that, because John is a pretty crazy character and a lot of people had been going out to him. He was a very popular preacher, as we've seen. And John, in his gospel, is drawing attention to John the Baptist so that we can get a little bit clearer on his role as the one who was going to prepare the way for the bridegroom, for the real bridegroom. And we hear him three times deny that he is the Christ. And that's no certain. That's no. That's not just a, a a happenstance thing, because that is to match the three times that Peter 
denies the Christ at the end of the book. So John also denies that he himself is the Christ at the beginning of this book. To match this this denial that Peter has. We hear it first of all, uh, in addition to our our passage here, but in John uh, John chapter 1 verse 26, John the Baptist says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. And then the next day when Jesus came to him to be baptized, John says this second denial that he is the Christ. He says in verse 30 of chapter 1, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And it says a lot about Jesus' pre-existence before John, but we don't have time to go there. He said, John goes on to say, This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. I am not the Son of God, but this one is the Son of God. It's in our passage today that we see a great humility and an entirely different way of viewing the world than we often think. And in fact, that the world that we live in often thinks. John had already encouraged his disciples in chapter 1 to go follow Jesus, and you can go there in your own time, but he says, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and then all of a sudden his disciples go, and he doesn't say, no, 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 where are you going? Come, come back to me. No, he says, no, that's good that they go, because my, the whole point of my ministry is to point to him so that they would follow him. I've been declaring for repentance and faith so that you would go and follow after this one who is greater than me because he was before me. And but even though John is telling his disciples to go follow Jesus, there's still people that are streaming to John and following him and listening to him. So there's this new batch of disciples constantly following John. And there's a great temptation that presents itself to John. And as you look at the narrative, John almost seems to just kind of brush it aside. He's like, I'm not going to I'm not even going to go there. And what is that temptation? See, his disciples and we see in our passage here, his disciples draw attention to the fact that all are going to him. Look at verse 26. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And we know that in chapter four that Jesus actually wasn't baptizing. You can look at chapter four, verse two. Jesus didn't actually baptize anyone. It was his disciples who were baptizing. But the point is still this, is that they are going to follow this other person, John. Are you going to do anything about it? Aren't you a little jealous that they're going to somebody else? They're going across the Jordan River to this other person named Jesus? The point here that I want to make is that even though John himself throughout his ministry was pointing to someone else, to the superiority of Jesus in his own ministry, there's a temptation to forget that the best man is merely that, the best man, and he's not the groom. It's almost as if his disciples are saying, look, John, all are going out to him. Aren't you going to do anything about that? Aren't you going to do anything? Aren't you upset that they're leaving you and they're going to him? There's a great temptation in all of our hearts, just as I'm sure there's a temptation in John's own heart. At least we don't see it here, but we see it in throughout his disciples. At verse 27, see, he kept front and center what was most important to him. John answered them and he said this, a person can't receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He understood that all that he had was from God's hand. The notoriety. The respect, all of the followers that he had, they were given to him by God and he was meant to steward them 
to usher them into the presence of Jesus. He kept front and center what the own purpose for his life was meant to be about. It was meant to be about someone else, which is a far cry from what we see in our own culture. We want so much for people to like and to share and to follow us. John knew that all of these followers didn't belong to him. They belonged to God and preeminently seen in following the Son of God. It's almost as if you hear his disciples saying all of this to John and trying to incite a little bit of jealousy in John. And he says, and what's the what's the point? Didn't you hear what I've said to you the whole time that that I am coming to bear witness to this one? And why are you getting jealous? Why are you getting upset that 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 group over there is growing? They forgot that the whole point of his existence was to point to Jesus Christ. And just like John's disciples, we often can forget our place. Indeed, our culture forgets its place, that everything that it has was given to it by someone else, namely God. Oftentimes our culture sounds a lot like what rapper Snoop Dogg said. Yes, I'm going to quote from Snoop Dogg in this sermon. And when he went to an award ceremony, he said what is in the heart of every person who receives an award. You know, typically when somebody receives a Grammy or an Oscar, they, they think this litany of people. Are, I want to thank my producer. I want to thank the people who swept the floors. I want to thank, you know, as many people, the more people they can thank, the more they actually puff themselves up in some way to say, wow, he's a really humble person. But Snoop Dogg said what was really in the heart and is sometimes in the hearts of us. He says... When he went to receive his award, he said, last but not least, I want to thank me. I want to thank me for believing in me. I want to thank me for doing all this hard work. I want to thank me for having no days off. I want to thank me for never quitting. I want to thank me for always being a giver and trying to give more than I receive. I want to thank me for trying to do more right than wrong. I want to thank me for just being me at all times. See, he says explicitly, and y'all should honestly, I mean, that, that, that's what is in our own hearts a lot of times. Is like if we are honest with ourselves, and it serves as a warning when we post stuff on social media, on Facebook and Instagram, are we doing it for other people? Are we doing it for ourselves? Are we doing it so people can say, wow, that's a really caring parent. <laughs> that's a really humble person that they're posting all this stuff that, you know, a lot of times we need to be careful That we aren't pointing to ourselves and trying to say, look at me and would you just praise me? You see, the best man of the groom remembers a few very important things and we would do well to remember a very few things as well. First of all, that the best man is not the groom. The best man is not the groom. He's simply there to make sure the groom has everything that he needs. Secondly, he remembers that this is not his wedding. You know, he probably would have chosen a different suit or a different color scheme or a different song or a different prayer or a different scripture or whatever. It's not his wedding. He's there to serve. He's there to support the groom. And then thirdly, the wedding ultimately is not about him. The wedding is not about him just in the same way that all that we are doing in our own lives is not about us. I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding where the best man is trying to upstage the groom, but it's really awkward. 
You know, everybody waits with a bated breath if the, if the best man's going to give some kind of strange toast or he's going to say something off color. But that best man didn't remember what his role was, right? But John himself remembers and he points us to also remember what our role is, but particularly as attendees. And these attendees, the best man and all the groomsmen and all the bridesmaids, they're meant to support and serve the groom and the bride. They are the main players in the wedding. And this is what John is talking about in verses 29 through 30. Look there. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. He's talking about Jesus, right? The friend of the bridegroom, the best man, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. See, there's a beauty and a joy in forgiving ourselves. And being at the beck and call of the groom. There's a great joy in not having everything be about us. As Tim Keller said in his excellent booklet, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, which we actually uh, have given to several visitors, and I would commend it to you as well. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness is just a little booklet here. That we know that we have been radically changed by the gospel when we think of ourselves less. Not less of ourselves, but simply thinking of ourselves less frequently. There's a great joy and a great delight. Let me read just a little bit where Keller says this. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. Not needing to connect things always with myself. It's an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does this make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself altogether. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest That only self-forgetfulness brings. There's a beauty and a freedom. And if you've ever been in the presence of someone in a conversation where the conversation wasn't always about them. I know I've quoted from Brian Regan before and I won't do it again here where he talks about the me monster in a conversation. And constantly talking about himself. Constantly taking a conversation that was not about him and he makes it about himself. But what joy and great delight that we have when we are talking with someone and they're actually asking and they're actually involved and and interested in us as people. That's what God calls us to do is to forget about what we look like. Do I sound weird? Did I mess up when I read the passage? Did I do this or did I do that wrong? Or to just forget about it and say this is all about Jesus and not about me. Because the best man knows that he is there to serve the groom. He knows his role, and we would do well to heed his model for us, that we also need to be about someone else and not always thinking about ourselves. But then secondly, the best man prepares the bride. So the best man serves the groom, but the best man also prepares the bride, making sure that she she has everything that she needs. See, contained within this story of John and his ministry is the fact that he was sent ahead to prepare the way. And this is what Advent urges each of us to do. 
to call again, to, to clear away the weeds and to till up the hardened ground of our own hearts that have happened over the last year and to have hearts ready to receive. Because again, when I say about this year, I'm not just talking about 2020 because we come back to Advent year after year after year because the tendency of our hearts, regardless of what's happened in a year, is to have our hearts hardened, to have our ears just so muddled with all this outside clamoring that we forget the most important thing is to hear the bridegroom's voice. And we clutter it up with a million different things. And this year is merely served in technicolor to show us that tendency. See, like Mary received the strange and awful promise of becoming pregnant even though she didn't know a man that way. The call for us this morning is to receive within our own selves a clearing of our own hearts to prepare the way to clear out all of the weeds so that God might live His very life in us. Like we sang a moment ago in our first song that God would live His life through us and that we would prepare our hearts a, a womb as it were to give birth, to prepare room in our own hearts, space and oxygen for our own lives. And we are called this morning to clear away to our hearts to provide space. You see, a fire, in order to be set ablaze, needs oxygen. It needs space. It needs room. My friends, God is calling you this morning with a hundred million things that are going through your mind, even now, instead of hearing what God is saying in John chapter 3, all the busyness that's in our hearts and in our minds right now, God is saying, slow down. Clear out the noise. And listen for my voice. Listen for my voice. My question for us today is, how have we crowded out the most vital, life-giving, awe-inspiring life that's offered to us? In what ways have we, through a million different things, crowded out the most vital, life-giving, awe-inspiring voice of all, the voice of the groom who's calling out to you out of love, and it just makes you yawn instead of makes you leap for joy? In what ways through scoffing at others this year, through gossip, through judgments and despising of others this past year, have you crowded out the vital lifeblood of the Spirit in your own life? But see, friends, He doesn't stand over you and berate you. And say, man, you are such a loser. That's not how God operates. He's sitting in the pew next to you. And he's whispering in your ear, prepare the way. I, I want to make my home with you. And as Jesus told Nicodemus right before our passage, this is the work of God in our lives. That God himself, by his spirit, blows where he wills so that he can give birth. Right? A man and a woman, they can't be born again unless the Spirit of God does it. And so God is sitting next to you saying, prepare room in your life for me. Stop crowding it out with a hundred million different things. That may be good, but that don't give you life, the life that you long for. Make room, make space, provide oxygen in your life by simplifying, by clearing away all of the stuff that is merely smoldering the flame in your own heart. So 
Our tendency is to place our hope and joy and confidence in so many things. And we're invited to see John pointing to Jesus and saying, listen, listen to the voice of the bridegroom this morning. He must increase. I must decrease. As the sun rises, the glory of the moon fades away. Does Christ seem small in your life this morning? Does Christ seem small in your life this morning? Someone that you don't really think that much about. Because you've got so many other things that are vying for your attention. How have you spent your time over the last month? Just take a quick inventory. Has it been running frantically trying to please everyone? Trying to make sure everybody's taken care of? Has it been making fun of those who disagree with you politically? I get very sad when I see some Christians, the way they talk about others who disagree with them, does not sound like Jesus. Have you crowded out the voice of God in your life by busying yourself with anxieties of, of the future and fear of failure and licking wounds from the past that you can't do anything about? Jesus calls you to draw near to him this morning. Clear away all of the dross, all of the weeds to till up the ground of your own heart to receive the word of God yet again. That's what Advent is calling us to do is to prepare our hearts to use this time to not let it just go by, but to say, Lord, would you do a work in my life by your spirit to make me care again? To make me care about the things that you care about. And not the things I'm told to care about. There's a, there's a guy by the name of John of the Cross or Juan de la Cruz. Juan of the Cross wrote a commentary. I quoted from his poem several months ago. And this poem is called, O Living Flame of Love. A Living Flame of Love. And he wrote a commentary about this. And a lot of times when we talk about our relationship with God... And we talk about it being about passion and love and joy. We get a little uneasy. But I think sometimes, and I think the the merit here from, from Scripture says, no, you should go there and you should kindle this fire, this flame in your own heart. And he wrote this, and I think it's a challenge for me, and I hope it's a challenge for all of us. And he says this about this living flame of love. He says, this flame of love is the spirit of its bridegroom. That is the Holy Spirit. The soul feels him within itself, not only as a fire that has consumed and transformed it, but as a fire that burns and flares within it. And that flame, every time it flares up, bathes the soul in glory and refreshes it with the quality of divine life. Such is the activity of the Holy Spirit in the soul transformed in love. The interior acts he produces shoot up flames for they are acts of inflamed love in which the will of the soul united with that flame, the flame of the Holy Spirit, made one with it, loves most sublimely. Isn't that beautiful that this flame that is not only meant to burn out all of the junk in our life, it's also meant to be united with that flame who is the spirit in our own lives and so that it continues to rage and roar. And that's what God is calling this morning. He said, if you will, if you will clear it out and breathe oxygen on your own life and, and cut out all of the stuff 
and just come back to the simple faith of hearing my voice, then I too will cause a raging fire, an inflamed love to well from within you. He doesn't besmirch those who come to him. He doesn't say, what is wrong with you? No, he says, come to me and I will cause that that, that smoldering wick to be burning like a bonfire. If you'll let me. And in, and in doing that, in, in, in flaming and in bringing in this love and fanning that flame of love, what are we doing? We're pointing to another wedding. We're pointing to, we're preparing our hearts because we're looking forward to a wedding that John talks about in his uh, last book, of, uh, that's in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, Right? So you've got several different wedding venues here within John's writing. But then you have this Revelation 21 wedding that he talks about. Right? This is, and, we, and we heard a, a segment of it here just a moment ago. But Revelation 21, where John points us to a wedding that we are preparing ourselves for. This, this beautiful wedding feast. This place where, this, where we will see God face to face. John wrote this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will Be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning. Nor crying. Nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. My friends, the Lord wants to fan the flame your own hearts this morning. And I'm... Praying and asking God to do that in my own life and in the life of our church. That we wouldn't let all of the good things in life crowd it out. To quench that flame by by smoldering it. By laying a wet blanket on the flame of our lives. But instead pulling that off and saying, Lord, would you breathe by your spirit? Would you breathe on the flames of our lives and cause us to be set ablaze anew this Advent season? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would do what only you can do. That as you told Nicodemus, that the Spirit blows where he will. And we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would come and blow upon the lives of those who are in this room and who are listening. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fan into flame the smoldering wick that oftentimes is our lives and instead of a word of condemnation and guilt instead we would feel a beckoning call of our father who loves us who sent his son to die for us and that our hearts would be set ablaze that this advent season would be a mark in our the history of our lives to where you took what was smoldering and dying and you breathed life into it again and i pray that you would do that This morning, for those who are tired and weary, that you would breathe life 
that you would fan into flame again that which is flickering. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.